Hi friends, I hope you're doing well. I recorded today's podcast as a teaching out of my book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache, which I will link up in the show notes of this episode and is available in all formats. This chapter is called The Divine Spark and it really comes from me wrestling with what I really ultimately believe about the human experience, what I ultimately believe is true. And I believe that if we really clarify our beliefs and if we really think and sit with what we believe is true, then it can inform how we should act in such a crazy world. And so that's why I wanted to do a short teaching on this chapter. As always, if you're getting anything out of this show, it would mean the world to me if you would share it with somebody you think that might dig the message, it might be helpful for, share it with your social media following, or even head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Without further ado, on to the show. Humans experience consciousness at a level that appears to be more expanded than everything else in the physical world. Our awareness has evolved so widely that it encapsulates the knowledge of self and all that the self entails. With this knowledge, we've come to understand that our depth isn't limited to our existence in the physical world, but has ethereal roots that our logical minds struggle to comprehend. As far as we know, humans are unlike other animals in this way. We are uniquely aware of the fact that while we are finite, the self that we can describe has borders as well as an expiration date, there are aspects of our being that appear to transcend these borders and limitations. Our psyches come pre-packaged with the ability to channel archetypes, profound insights, and the knowledge of worlds that we can't see or touch. Now, in the first two chapters of this book, because this is chapter three, what I'm doing is I'm, I talk about a lot of the ways that we put our identity into material in the first couple chapters. We put our identity into jobs that we like, into titles we want. We put our identity into uh, relationships. And what we're doing when we do that, we're giving those things the power to name who we are. And part of the spiritual path, part of recognizing that you do have a soul, that there's more to, there's more to you than just what you can see and what you can intimate on an obvious level Right? What I'm trying to do is create a little bit of space between the things you're going through, the things you do in the world, and what you allow to name you. Right, Because if you allow those things to name you, they're going to limit you. And that's true because our labels are limiting. Right, I've talked about how when we, we can find God, for example, when we label God in a certain way, and then we essentially make this thing that we've used to conceptualize the infinite we use that and we make we drag that down to a very finite conception, to a very limited. Now, it doesn't mean we're actually limiting God. It means we're limiting our ideas of what God is and we're limiting our ability to be able to interact with it. Same thing. You can say that you're your job title. You can put all your self-worth in your relationship. And so for all intents and purposes, that limits you to that thing. But that doesn't mean it's all, it's ultimately true, right? What's true about you is that there's something more to you. And psychologists have been telling us this forever, right? 95 to 97% of who we are is actually unconscious to us. And so the mystery begins when we turn and start to face that other 95 to 97%, we, right? We realize, oh, I've been limiting myself by putting my identity in these small parts of the world. And perhaps there's actually a lot more to me. Finding out what that is, that's the beauty of the spiritual path, right? It's realizing that none of these other things actually have the power to name who you are. 
That's going to be important as we continue here. While every culture has its own way of conceptualizing this transcendent nature, what they all have in common is that each of them use it as a form of guidance for navigating the material world. Typically, this guidance comes as a result of an inner knowing one must learn to discern and to follow. In Gnostic and Western mystic practices, this is known as the divine spark. Eastern mysticism refers to it as Atman. According to the Bhagavad Gita, the Atman is a spirit existing in our hearts. We are primarily spiritual travelers, consciously manifesting in form. In the Abrahamic religions, it is expressed as the soul, and perhaps where we see that we are made in God's image. In New Age spiritual endeavors, it is often referred to as the higher self or the true self. In this book, I'll refer to it often as the soul, while laying out a case for its unique importance in the human experience. You might think of the soul as a well from which one can draw infinite strength, wisdom, and guidance. You might further think of your own actions as either strengthening or weakening this internal guidance system. We weaken our soul every time we act or speak in a way that is out of alignment with our own value system. So if you look all around the world, right, this is what I was trying to say here. If you look all around the world at all these religions, you realize they all, you know, they have different conceptions of reality. They have different ways of dividing the human up and saying what's true about the human. But what's interesting is that all of them do point to some divine spark. They do say, well, there is something in the human that is ultimately of the divine. And it's interesting because we don't talk about the pre-existence of a soul much in our culture. Uh, Christianity, I would say, doesn't say that it's not a thing, but they don't talk about it either. They don't say it's a thing. So a lot of people that follow the Abrahamic religions, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, tend not to talk too much about the pre-existence of a soul. But then there's these curious lines where, say, where God says something like, before before the world was, I knew you, right? Like before I hung the stars in the sky, I knew you and I loved you. And so there's something going on there. And so one of the things that I'm, what I'm saying here is, well, we have all of these religions, all of these cultures are saying that we have an internal guidance system. And that guidance system is ultimately aligned with what's good, with what's true, with what's right in the world. And so if we want to try to find out and try to align ourselves with what's good, we've got to turn inward. We've got to find that place in ourselves where we are connected to what's good. That's the divine spark. And I would also say it's worth coming to terms with what you believe about this life. And this is one of the things I was trying to force in this book is to say, listen, if you you have a certain set of beliefs. What's at the bottom of those beliefs, right? Because if you believe that you do have a divine spark, that there is something of you that's lined up with what's good. Well, when you are getting lost in the world, which we are right now, right? Lots of us are being consumed. I'm certainly no different. Being consumed in the madness, being consumed in the confusion and the chaos, being really frustrated, perhaps even disgusted. Like I'm more disgusted now with my government than I've ever been in my entire life. Um, right, so we have all of these these external things that are happening out in the world, and if we identify with those things and we get pulled into those things, then that's what that's going to dictate the quality of our world and our life, and it's going to feel like chaos. But if we ultimately believe that we do have a soul, and that that soul isn't benign, right? In in modern culture, the modern belief system is something like tabula rosa, which is Latin for blank slate, which means we come into this world as a blank slate. And I don't believe that at all. 
I don't think you are, I don't think you can just program yourself to do whatever you want. And if you could, I think you could make yourself happy with money. You could just say, well, well, fuck it. I'm just going to decide that this is what I want now and go after that. But you can't do that because you have an internal constitution that's making demands of you all the time. And it's very interesting. If you look back through culture, one of the things you see is that the king was an incarnation of the divine. I've talked about this a little bit on here, right? Look at the pharaohs, incarnation of Ra, the sun god. And one of the things that happens with the Abrahamic religions is they say, well, you are the image of that god. You are made in God's image. And so what's happening there is that they're de- they're democratizing it now. It used to be that the king served as what's called the axis mundi. The axis mundi in mythical terms is described as like a cylinder that goes all the way from the heavens to the core of the earth. And it's a way that the divine enters into the world, enters into the earth, right? Enters into incarnation. And so it used to be the king that acted as the axis mundi. That was their job to become the incarnation of the divine. And then what happens is that the Abrahamic religions come along and they democratize that and they say, no, it's your job to access the Axis Mundi. It's your job to incarnate the divine where you are in your family system, in your uh, kingdom, wherever it is that you find yourself, it is your job. And so one of the things that I'm positing here that what's true at the bottom of all of this is actually you're not here by accident. It's not chance. You actually have something to give. You're not here in this really ridiculous world right now with nothing to give as an impotent bystander who can't do anything. I I don't believe that at all. And so it's worth coming to terms with your own belief. Like, oh man, do I think that I have a soul? Do I think that my soul is ultimately connected to what's good? I heard John Verveke one time cognitive psychologist professor talk about how joy, the, the feeling of joy, it happens as, be, as we are connected to what's good. And so that's not happiness, right? That's not the fleeting positive emotion of happiness. It's not the affect emotion happiness. And this is why you can be sad or you can grieve and you can still have joy, right? Because you can be connected to what's good even though you're mourning, Right? And this is actually one of the things that Christ puts forth, I would say, in the Beatitudes, right? Um, Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall find the kingdom of heaven, something like that, right? And so you can be connected to what's good and still feel the pain, like still feel the anger and the disgust and all the things you feel about the external world and still be connected to that internally. And I would say not only can you, but you somewhat have a responsibility to be. You know, in the spirit in the new age like spiritual world, they talk about this idea of us choosing our incarnation and like we have soul contracts with certain people like the idea would be that, you know, your your parents, they're all like part they're all your soulmates and they all you've all been circling around each other through all of these different incarnations, playing different roles, helping guide each other back home toward the light. And so we come here to learn Right, to learn something essential about ourselves, about our souls, about love, for example. And I could, I could build that philosophy out pretty far, but I don't want to just because I don't want to get too far from the book. 
But it's very interesting to think about, right? You don't have to take it literally, but what would it mean if you chose to be here? Well, and in fact, I would say you can't take it literally because as soon as someone says that, hey, you chose to be here, you're thinking I, you're thinking ego structure, you're thinking personality structure because that's what you think of when you say I. But I would say what what's deeper, what they're saying is deeper than that is some part of your soul chose to be here because there was something it could learn or it has something to give. And so again, what this means, what I try to point people to is our psychology is showing us that we have an internal guidance system. Your values are your compass, right? You have to make, this is why I said we weaken our soul every time we act or speak in a way that's out of alignment with our own value system. So the values become our compass. What we really value tells us where to go, how to act and what to do. In archetypes, right, archetypes are spontaneous productions of the human psyche, according to Joseph Campbell. So they're like patterns of behavior. They're like the map. And so internally, you have the compass and you have the map. And the compass is aligned with what's ultimately good. That's your soul. And so other people can't have your answers, right? They can't tell you what you're doing here. They can't tell you what your purpose is. But they can guide you back to you. They can guide you back to your own internal knowing. And through that internal knowing, and this is what all religions are meant to do, right? To help remind you of who you really are. Because once you learn, once you really figure out who you really are, and that you are aligned with good, then you are able to actually fulfill the destiny that you're here for. By the very nature of our being, some part of who we are has always been and always will be. According to the first law of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. That implies that some part of us, our soul, our essence, the energy that makes up the very fabric of our existence has always existed in one form or another. What that means for you and me is that we've literally waited billions of years to be in this very moment. And so my hope is that we start acting like it. So again, it's interesting that we don't talk about the pre-existence of a soul, but there are myths that do. There's plenty, like there's a myth that came out of Plato that I talk about often that talks about the process that souls go through before they incarnate, right? All these myths are just trying to, trying to point at the idea, right? It's not a literal thing. If you take it as literal, you'll end up missing, you'll miss the fruit, you know, you'll miss the gold. But to realize, man, maybe, maybe I'm not here on accident though. Maybe I'm not here at this really interesting apocalyptic time by chance, by happenstance. Maybe I actually have something to give. Maybe I have gifts. Maybe I have my own genius, my own unique genius. And it's my job to incarnate that in the world. And maybe my world gets better if I really take that job seriously. I've come to see that the energy that underlies our existence can be viewed in much the same way as the energy in the power grid that is stored in the walls until one of us walks over and turns on a light switch. In that moment, the energy is then redistributed into the room as light, a form in which it is far more useful than it was while being stored in the wires and the walls. When our energy is here in this form and the switch is turned on, we can learn much about the characteristics of the soul by understanding the light. Light does not have the desire to be validated or reciprocated, yet it's no less helpful. It does not need to know that its efforts are appreciated to continue to guide those who need it. It does not matter how long something exists in the shadows. Light will expose it without prejudice. Furthermore, we define darkness not as its own thing, but as the absence of light. It's worth noting, however, that even when a human perceives darkness, photons, the elemental structure that make up light, are still present. We're just unable to see them. In other words, light is never extinguished, but environmental conditions 
might cause it to be hidden. They might make it really hard to see. In identifying the universe's qualities and characteristics, you can gain the recognition that what is in it is also in you. It is through understanding the soul that we understand what unites each of us outside of form. Spirit and mystery exist without edges, and so it is in that place that we can find unity with all living things. It is this place that we find the audacity to reach for the infinite. And that's what a human conception of God is, right? We have the audacity as finite creatures to reach for the infinite, to say there's something in us that is of the infinite, and we know it. And as we know it, we don't know it intellectually. It becomes an embodied, intuitive knowing. And here's what's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. This is something we don't talk about in modern culture anymore because I think we do. We just use completely different words and don't realize that we're talking about the exact same thing. But in any case, imagine that there's a, there's a battle going on between light and darkness. I talk about it in here as the Cherokee parable about the wolf that you feed. But imagine that you have a war going on between darkness and light. But imagine that you believe that you are ultimately aligned with what's right, right? Imagine that you take all of these world religions and all of these cultures and you, you say that they're not lying, that there is something of you that is ultimately connected to what's good. Well, if I'm darkness and I'm trying to convince you to go down a dark path, right? I'm impotent to do anything to you. I can't change you. I can't do anything because you are already that light. Right? It's your birthright to incarnate the divine just by nature of what you are. So if I'm darkness, what I have to do then is convince you that you're not that. And that's what you see in the world. And that's, you know, we have all these narratives. We internalize the tyrant. We beat ourselves up. And all of those things, what we're doing is we're giving away our power. Because if darkness really wants you, what it has to do is convince you that you're not what you know that you are. Because once you know that once you know what you are, you can't be disconnected. You can't be disconnected from what you are. This is why the world's great religions, again, are trying to remind you of what you are. And so when you think about this darkness battle and you think about the battle in your own life where maybe you have habits that you wish you didn't have or maybe you know, whatever it is, however darkness comes into your life, realize that it's only you that can give it away because it's your birthright to be here. It's your birthright to incarnate the divine. It's just by very nature of what you are. And so darkness has to convince you that you're not that. And there's a lot of people running around not understanding who they really are. And because of that, they're giving their power away constantly. As we engage further with life and seek to explore how we might best conduct ourselves in this mysterious scenario, two things become evident. First, the problems that we engage with in life actually end up defining our lives. And second, there's no way we can engage with our problems in a productive manner without the understanding that there is a right and a wrong way to do so. Navigating without a north arrow on the map is all but impossible. We define the right way to be as virtues, and they serve as that arrow by outlining the fundamental goodness innate in all humanity. When humanity lapses into chaos, as it does from time to time, virtues provide us with firm ground to begin finding our way out. They tell us how to be when it appears that the world has gone mad. Virtues are what the hero uses to navigate the underworld. They are what we use to construct the ark when the flood is coming. So virtues show up in the Bible. Virtues show up. Aristotle is really the philosopher that talked about the importance of virtues. If we talk about the seven heavenly virtues, we're talking about faith, hope, charity, fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence, right? 
Well, the way that Aristotle thought about virtues and taught them is virtues are the form you give yourself to extract your laden and hidden potential. You have the potential to become far more than you are. But to become, but for potential to become something, it has to be informed, right? Because it's just chaos when it's potential. And so it has to commit to something to find form, and that's how it becomes something. So you need lane lines. And so the way that Aristotle taught virtues is that they provide you with what you need to grow. You have an impulse to do something that's going to take you away from yourself, but by embodying the right virtues, by striving for that and living up to that, it draws your potential of who you really could be out of you. But what most of us do is like we give in to our impulses and we get lost in confusion and we give our weakness and our fears the ability to name who we are and then we become that. Well, virtues are a way of pulling your identity back to the light. So if you find yourself in that place, what Aristotle was saying is, this is how you build the ark, right? Chaos is the water. Chaos is the flood. Mythologically speaking, when you read like Noah's Ark, for example, or any of the flood narratives, the idea being that the world is being consumed with chaos. Now that chaos is also cleansing because it's water. But how is it that you build an ark that keeps you safe when the chaos starts coming. What Aristotle would say is that those are virtues. So as you start to identify with the world and you realize, but do I really believe this? This is why at the beginning of this episode, I asked you, what do you believe ultimately about yourself? Do you believe ultimately in your divine spark? Do you believe ultimately that what's in you is aligned with with what's ultimately good? Because if you do, then you start to act in accordance with the virtues, not what the world is presenting you with. And as you do that, You start to inform your potential. You start to give yourself form. You become something more than you were. And so Aristotle taught virtues as like a self-generating engine toward potential. It's like you can become more, but you have to undergo the sacrifice of limitations. And that's what virtues are. They ask you... They ask you not to Im- pursue impulsive pleasure, right? And so what that means is that you're, you are limiting what you can do. You're limiting your behavior. And in doing so, you're becoming something more in the long term. And so because we are ultimately aligned with what's good, we can use those virtues to pull our potential out of us, right? To, to actually become an incarnation of that goodness that's inside of us in the external world. And that would be, in religious terms, how we reflect God's light. We have to become something of the light ourselves. And that often requires sacrifice. And it requires us not to act on impulse. And it requires us to believe in something deeper than ourselves. It believes it asks us to believe in something higher. It's like value-wise than what can be presented in the world, right? We talk about God as the transcendent value, right? That means that hierarchically, it's above all values. And if it's the thing, you know, if we're using the word God as what we think about with God, which is the nexus point, the thing from which all other things in creation exist, then it itself is beyond existence, right? God is no thing. It's not like a thing in the world. It's not a thing you can point to and say, well, that's God. And that's why all of these debates about trying to prove God are so uh, futile, because it's it's super existent, right? Or supra existent, I guess you would say. It's beyond existence. It is no thing in itself. So when an atheist says God doesn't exist, right? I'm inclined to say you're right. You're right. And if you're thinking about it as something that exists, it's not that. And so the confusion of the world is us trying to align ourselves with what's good and it's virtues that create the lane lines which help navigate us 
give us a thing to navigate off of when we are in chaos, when we are feeling compulsive, when we are feeling impulsive, right? All of those things. That's why virtues are really hard to embody. And when you look at somebody like the saints, right? These are heroes. These are, they have heroic virtue. They were able to incarnate the light almost completely, right? And they went, undergo the process of theosis, which is the process of becoming God. So we recognize that as people, we have something deep within us that is ultimately aligned with those virtues. That is why we all agree that if the protagonist in a story wins by what we consider cheating, we don't feel as though we've actually won. This is why the Lion King doesn't end with Scar ruling the kingdom. This perhaps is also why Zazu, the, no- the annoying bird who symbolizes the role of the conscience in the story, says cheetahs never win. The spoils of prosperity are apparently reserved for those who take on their adversity in a forthright manner. So what I'm pointing at here is that you actually know this. We all know this. And we wouldn't appreciate a story that didn't align with what we all know. The narrative that has been distilled through time is that the light always shines through eventually. Said another way, love always wins. Not sometimes, but always. If love hasn't won, it is likely that you haven't waited long enough. If you were alive in 1930s Germany, you would be quite sure that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. Only by reading history as one long drama would you begin to understand that you were simply living through a wrinkle in time, albeit a bloody one dominated by darkness. History reveals to us that the highest good ultimately prevails. The catch is that though this is true, the highest good comes on the back of countless human souls who are willing to align themselves with it, often suffering the deadly consequences of doing so. In religious terms, we might say that the kingdom of God is won by the bravery of humans who knew unequivocally that there was far more to them in their story than their present suffering. Our highest calling is to continue the legacy of those working for the light. Without this conception of an ultimate right and wrong, how would you know in which direction to move next? How would you know what the hero would do? Yet regardless of the scenario that you find yourself in, you always have the ability to become still and ask yourself what the hero would do if he or she were in your position. What you find in asking yourself this question is that you almost always know the answer. More often than not, our hesitation stems from realizing that what's right and what's difficult are one and the same. We intrinsically find ourselves aligning with certain virtues that are presupposed to be in alignment with what is ultimately correct, be it God, gods, or a deeply ingrained human moral landscape. In any case, the stories told about the triumph of humanity have this North Arrow built into their structure. These stories tell us that what is inside of us is ultimately true, and furthermore, that we can look to that truth in times of trouble and tribulation. See, I think we're in times of trouble and tribulation now. And I think the more you look to those to the world for your answers, the more you're going to feel that, the more you're going to feel the trouble, the more you're going to feel the tribulation. And the only way that that will change is if we as individuals actually recognize the sacred right we have to become incarnations of the divine ourselves. Right? If it doesn't happen at an individual level, it won't have happened at all. And so we look to our leaders, which are garbage. Right? We look, to our, we look to our elected leaders. We look to all of these people to have our answers to tell us what to do next. And the more we do, the more trouble and tribulation we feel. Because we're not honoring what's true about us. What's true about us is that we have our answers, that we are sovereign, not on license, but on principle. 
that there's something deep and true in us that cannot be taken away. The only way it can be taken away is if darkness convinces you that you're not who you know you are, because then you give the power away yourself. Darkness, remember, is the absence of light, so it must convince you to walk away from what you know is true. Right before the climax of The Lion King, Simba wrestles with the idea of answering his calling and reclaiming the kingdom from Scar. Destiny often requires a level of responsibility that pushes many people to avoid their call, at least at first. In the modern world, we tend to avoid our call by finding the correct anesthetic that allows us to forget about it. Alcohol and other pacifiers work because they help us cope with a less than stellar existence. Unfortunately, they do it by numbing the part of us that won't tolerate that existence in the first place. If escapism is the tack that we take when navigating our lives, we will inadvertently deafen ourselves to our personal call to adventure. Our call is the thing that thrusts us from the ordinary world and into the unknown in search of better. It becomes very difficult to hear if you push the escape button every time the world presents you with a reality that you don't like. In this manner, the world continues with its soul-sucking jobs that monopolize our finite amount of time, while at the same time we are unknowingly propped up by industries of distraction. What does it say about the world that we've constructed when some of the biggest industries in it exist solely to help people cope with that world? We must learn to sit in the tension of our lives until we can hear the soul's guidance for where to go next. Doing what we know to be right and living in our truth is made more difficult by the fact that everywhere you look, there will be people who persuade you otherwise. Note that most of the time this isn't out of malice, but rather because we are all on different journeys. Timon and Pumbaa weren't trying to convince Simba to stay in their paradise because they wanted his soul to disintegrate over time from denying his responsibility. Rather, that's how they learned to keep themselves safe in a brutal world. So they projected that desire onto him. You may notice family and friends in your life who come from a similar place. Be this as it may, the hero always learns to trust the truth that has been revealed to him or her over the prevailing truth of the culture or society in which they find themselves. The adventure that one embarks on in pursuit of the revealed truth is the hero's journey. The pressure to do something else other than our calling is often far stronger than we recognize. We will spend all of our lives running errands, doing this thing or that, all the while avoiding the one thing we know deep down we're here to do. Usually these distractions only serve the moment in which they keep us occupied. If you find yourself within enough silence and stillness, all you must do is ask yourself, what is the one thing that I know I need to do that I'm not doing? The question is a form of prayer, and the answer, a form of divinity. As Simba wrestles with his call, his attention is directed back toward the sky, where his father, Mufasa, says to him, Remember who you are. In ancient tribal cultures, particularly in Africa, ancestors were understood to provide guidance from the next world. In this story, they provide the articulation of what is ultimately right. Simba, remembering who he is, directs him to his rightful place in the world. This is also one of the main ideas that sits at the bottom of the world's great religions. I know I just talked about this, but we'll keep going here. In many more words, they seek to remind you of who you actually are. The path to where we need to go always lies within us, so we must start by looking inward to find it. Whatever you find outside is normally only a distraction from the truth. Akuna matata, as they say. 
So now I go on in this chapter to talk about the different ways, the rites and rituals that we have of really coming to terms with this truth that we have, right? See, people want to know what their purpose is for the world. And so in some ways they're saying, what is it that my soul is here to do? But I've talked about this idea before that you can't know by knowing. You can't just ask the question and think that you can think your way out of it. You actually have to engage with the world because what happens is when you engage with the world, you're met by resistance and you're met by obstacles. And those obstacles actually coax our potential out of us. They actually call us to become all that we're here to be. And your potential won't come out of you without an obstacle because it has no reason to. And so we put ourselves in the right situations in life and we face them in a forthright manner, and we strive for virtue, right? We, that's the way that tells us how to be here in the chaos. And when we strive for virtue and we meet the right obstacles, our potential is coaxed out of us, and then we become all that we're here to be. That's how we incarnate the divine. That's how we incarnate what we're here to be. The gift that you get for having gone on the journey, for having faced the underworld, for having faced the darkness in yourself, is the knowing of why it matters. And if you don't face it in yourself, you'll continue to find it out in the world, right? This is what happens. We project our inner world to the external world so that we can understand it better, right? There's an there's a evolutionary reason for psychological projection. But the thing to know is that until you know that you do it, you're going to do it constantly and rampantly. And so instead of resolving division within yourself, you're going and finding it out in the world and you're trying to conquer it there. And so you're running around chasing ghosts. I talked a little bit about that in the last essay that I wrote on here. But I want to just end by asking you, what do you believe? I mean, really, what, what's true for you at the very bottom of your core? You know, I had to walk myself into this existence or into this uh, reasoning and into this knowing because it was like part of me knew that I had this soul, that there was something in me of the divine. And at the same time, I didn't really believe it. Part of that was conditioning because in the, especially in the evangelical Christian world, there's a lot of pressure put on the idea of original sin. There's a lot of stock put on the idea that you're you're bad and irredeemable and that's why you need Jesus to, to redeem your soul. And you can believe what you want to believe about that, but the fall, right, this is all based on the fall. That happens in chapter three of Genesis. And before the fall, where it goes through the creation narrative, God talks about the fact that actually, no, you're good. He said that's the actual word he uses, you are good, right? And and why wouldn't you be? You know, when I write a book, there's something of my essence in that book. And so when God made you, there's something of there's something of God's essence in you. That's what's good. Right? Now you might fall going forward and you're going to because you're human. I think what's actually being articulated in the fall from grace that happens in in Genesis story, and maybe I'll do a a longer podcast on that someday. But one of the things that's being articulated there is that you are going to reach for unearned wisdom and you are going to fall because of it. Right? We do this all the time. You have to be careful with wisdom you didn't earn. You, have to, you can't just reach for knowledge out of greed. You actually have to be ready for it. And at no point in that narrative, you know, by the way, since we're talking about this, does God say you can never eat from that tree? He just says you can't now. Like maybe you're not ready. Maybe the evolution of your consciousness is not yet ready for that information. And so if you reach for wisdom you didn't earn, you might find yourself falling from grace. But don't forget that that's chapter three. Don't forget that at the beginning you were counted as good. There's something in you made from God. And one of the ways that I backed myself into this is whenever I found a pattern in my life where I acted out of, let's call it darkness, just to use the light and darkness motif, 
where I would act out of darkness and then I would get honest with myself and I would say, is that true? Like somebody would cut me off and I would think, I want to kill that person, right? This is what I would think. And um, in that moment, I would then stop. After I had this thought, I would have some sort of violent thought. Violence is really how I used to cope with the world. So I would have some sort of violent thought and then I would ask myself, do I actually think that's true? Like right now, all things being equal, would I kill that person? And so the next thing I would think is, no, of course not. Of course I wouldn't. And it's like, well, what's ultimately true? It's like, well, I'm kind of frustrated. It's like, okay, what else? It's like, well, I'm kind of frustrated and I actually don't know anything about that person. It's like, hmm. Well, what would it change if you knew that that person was like fighting their own battle? What would you actually want for them? I was like, well, I think I want what's good for them. It's like, yeah, of course you want what's good for them. You might fall in chapter three, but don't forget that in the beginning you were good. And if you get a moment of stillness, you always have the opportunity of returning to what's good about you, returning to your own light. Because remember, the only way that darkness wins is by convincing you that it's not your birthright to incarnate the divine, to be connected to what's good. Joy is your birthright because it is within you to be connected to what's good. And that can exist alongside of frustration, resentment, uh, anger, discuss all of the things you might be feeling about the world. Don't let it take you away from your connection to what's good. Don't give it the ability to name who you are, right? Even if you're mourning for the world, even if you're crying for the Afghani women that are going to be raped and murdered, right? Even if you have a heavy heart for them, don't forget that you're connected to joy. This is what darkness seeks to do. It seeks to, seeks to convince you that you're not what God made you. You always have the opportunity to return to stillness and remember who you are. And you always have the opportunity to put yourself in positions in life where the people around you encourage you, right? They instill courage in you to reach up for that light. They don't beat you down. They're not trying to get, you know, ahead of you or to be better than you in some way. You can put yourself in positions with people that are actually encouraging you to reach for the light. That's possible. You can be that for other people. You can remind them what's true in them once you find it in yourself. It's very hard to do it without that, though, right? Because the way we act in the world, this is what I've, what I've been saying on here, right? The way that we act in the world is so often a reflection of the way that we treat our own internal world and the way that we treat ourselves. And you probably know this, but you know at the end of yoga classes how they say namaste, right? And what that actually means is that the light in me honors and recognizes the light in you. And I think it's easy, you know, I do yoga a lot, so it's easy to just pretend that namaste means goodbye. So I try to consciously honor the light in that person, and it hits me as how important that is in our world of confusion and delusion, how important it is to foster and honor the light in another being. And that's the tragedy of all of this, all of this confusion. It's all the people who forgot who they really are. They've lost track of the light. You know, it's so interesting when you read old myth, often the names that are used in the labels are actually really significant. So now we have the name Noah and we just use the word Noah, but what Noah means is actually rest, right? So it's like um, finding rest in the chaos. And that's what he ends up becoming, right? This is the idea, the chaos engulfs the world, right? And Noah provides rest because Noah walks with God. That's how he's described. 
And so we can take, we can ask, what does that mean for us? It's like, well, when you feel that the world is chaos, when you feel like you're being engulfed with chaos, you need to turn inward. You need to find what is in you that's aligned with God. That's how you walk with God. You need to act according to that. You need to act according to these virtues. That's your roadmap. And if you do that, though it's going to be trouble at first, it's going to be really hard. You're going to have to face the darkness in yourself. You're going to have to confront these parts of yourself. If you do that, you will find rest. You will find ease. And that is regardless of the fact that the world is consumed in chaos. These things give us a roadmap. But it starts with realizing that the map is inside of you. That you have what you need. That what is ultimately true about you is ultimately true. I wish you could see that we are kings of bliss, begging for misery. We get lost in comparison, looking outside of me. Now I see this world is unraveling. I wonder who. to move so move it inside and wake up Give it to me.